The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. It's nice to be here with you. My name is May Elliott, and I'm coming today from San Francisco Zen Center, where I live and work, and I serve as director there. Um, And I spend a lot of time sitting Vipassana, uh, despite living at a Zen Center. So I love this tradition, and I'm very glad to be here. Um, If at any point in the talk you can't hear me, just do this, and I'll raise my voice a bit. Um, So I wanted to start with a very short poem about two very large beings um, by the great Sufi poet Rumi. And uh, his title for the poem is Two Giant Fat People. And it goes like this. God and I have become like two giant fat people living in a tiny boat. We keep bumping into each other and laughing. I'll read it again. God and I have become like two giant fat people living in a tiny boat. We keep bumping into each other and laughing. So some of you may be familiar with uh, Hote, sometimes known as the Laughing Buddha. Uh, You might have seen sculptures of him sometimes in gardens, and he's typically depicted as having this big belly and a huge smile. Sometimes his hands are up like this above his head, sometimes kind of rest in a resting posture. Um, and as it turns out, Hote is actually the depiction of a, uh, an old Chinese monk. Um, and, uh, as legend has it, uh, Hote was known for being so large, uh, because he would eat the suffering of others. Um, so, uh, he had this big belly because he consumed other people's problems, uh, all the while being full of joy. So when I hear Rumi's poem, what I see are two hotes sitting in a tiny boat, floating on the ocean of suffering, bumping into each other, and having a great time. Uh, and what I love about Hote is, he, is that he shows us that, uh, that joy helps us metabolize suffering, Right? Uh, like if we want to be resilient enough to face our own suffering, we need some joy. And you know, if we want to be in service to others, uh, if we want to meet the crises of gun violence or of racism or of deadly earthquakes, then we need to be pretty well-resourced. And joy helps us be well-resourced. So that's what I'd like to talk about tonight, joy, the practice of joy. And specifically, I'm calling this talk, The Buffet of Joy, Cultivating Wholesome States. So uh, considering so much of human life is spent trying 
to obtain joy and avoid unpleasant experiences, it's kind of surprising that we don't talk about it more directly and more frequently. So I became really interested in uh, what does Buddhism have to say about joy? And what are reliable means of cultivating it? And uh, can joy be available when circumstances are unfavorable? And this is a relevant topic for me because I've spent um, much of the past 15 years being really serious about practice. Um, And there have been many parts of uh, that time where... um, the practice was not about joy. It was about suffering and renunciation and uh, getting rid of my hobbies so I could meditate and sacrificing time with loved ones for retreats. And um, all of that has been a really powerful training. Um, And I've learned over time that it's uh, uh, severely underemphasized joy. Um, And it's taken me a long time to realize that Cultivating joy is a tremendously important part of the spiritual path. Um, yeah, joy is not an add-on. Some people feel like suffering is the meat of practice and joy is an accessory, but that's actually not the case. Like there's, there's a reason that the Buddha was known as the happy one. And joy is found all over the place in the Buddhist teachings. So you know, if you're a list person, Uh, You might know that you can find it in the seven factors of awakening uh, and in the 16 steps of Anapanasati. Um, It's in transcendent dependent arising, uh, sympathetic joys of Brahma Vihara. So it's all over the place. You don't have to go far to find it. Um, James Bear is the insight teacher who's probably best known for his teachings on joy. Um, He actually wrote a book called Awakening Joy. So if you Uh, want a little more joy in your life. That's a good one. Um, He says, gladness and delight do not merely balance out negative tendencies. They actually heal the aversive mind. I love that. Gladness and delight don't merely balance out negative tendencies. They actually heal the aversive mind. Uh, So one of the ways that I've learned to attune to joy is by getting to know the different flavors of joy, Um, kind of in the same way that one might be a a connoisseur of fine cheeses. Um, uh, One can also be a connoisseur of joy. Um, So here's, here's a quote from the Dhammapada. Tasting the flavor of solitude and peace, one becomes free of distress and evil, Drinking the flavor of Dharma joy. Ah, so happily we live. We who have no attachments, we shall feast on joy as the radiant gods. Sounds pretty good, right? So I'm using joy as a more general term tonight just to encompass all of these wholesome states, kind of a catch-all term. Um, But they're actually like very precise distinctions in the suttas about the different flavors of joy. And there's a set of teachings that's locally known as the gladness pentad um, that actually uh, goes through some of these flavors. So I'm going to share them with you uh, in the way that, you know, sometimes getting to, to hear distinctions helps wake us up to see those distinctions in our own life and to be more, more attuned to them. So 
Um, the five parts of the gladness pentad, um, there's gladness, pamoja is the first, then piti, joy, uh, tranquility, uh, pasadi, uh, happiness, or sukha, uh, and concentration, or samadhi. So gladness, joy, tranquility, happiness, and concentration. So in the suttas, this is presented as uh, something that can naturally arise in the heart, and can, they unfold from one to the next to the next. So it's kind of sequential. Um, and so uh, let's zoom in now on, on a couple of these, because it seems a lot like gladness, joy, and happiness. Like Those seem like they'd be synonymous, but they're actually not. Tranquility, I'd say most people are familiar. Tranquility has a slightly different flavor, you know, calm, concentration, the stilling of the mind, the collecting of the mind. But those three that I just named, they seem pretty similar. So those are the ones that I'll unpack for you. So the first, gladness, uh, or pamoja, um, uh, this state is more more evaluative in nature. So... uh, that's to say there's often, it's often evoked by a mental catalyst, um, like I'm glad about something. So gladness arises when we evaluate a situation. It might happen in a split second, and we go, oh, this is pretty great. You know? uh, and uh, often gratitude has this quality, uh, quality of gladness, because uh, it comes from reflection. Like, oh, I'm so glad that that meeting at work went well today, or oh, I'm so glad that I have this cozy blanket for my, my bed. You know, so it's, it has a, a mental catalyst for it. Joy, PT, on the other hand, the next factor in the gladness pentad, does not rely on a mental catalyst. So uh, it doesn't need any sort of mental stimulus for it to happen. Um, instead, it's more physical, very energized, uplifting, and often it comes forth from wholehearted engagement in activity. So, like, um, uh, so meditative joy or PT. Sometimes it's even translated as rapture, because as the mind really begins to collect, a lot of energy and joy can come forth physically in the body. So, um, then we have tranquility, and then happiness. Uh, so happiness is considered the most subtle of the three. Um, it's more subdued, relaxed, calm, satiated, um, so uh, contented. Um, and it happens as we continue to become more collected, more immersed in, in um, wholehearted engagement with the task at hand. Um, and then concentration. So those are the five. Um, But uh, to share maybe an analogy for those three, the three really similar ones, um, there's an analogy in the commentaries to the Abhidhamma uh, that does a nice job of describing how uh, joy and happiness are different. Um, And I think it actually, I'll add in a way that it also explains gladness too. So imagine for a moment that you are out in a desert and you are parched. It's been a long time since you've had anything to drink. Um, and uh, you happen to hear from someone uh, that there's an oasis nearby. 
So you can imagine that upon hearing this news, the mind becomes very glad. It's really glad about the fact that there's an oasis there. Like there's that gladdening in the heart. When actually starting to travel to the oasis, you can imagine there's a lot of energy and excitement and joy. So that's, that's how it is going to the oasis. Once you get to the oasis and you uh, drink water to your heart's content and you bathe in the waters and there's birds and lotuses and you rest back in the shade and you're satiated and content, that is sukha. So piti is the excitement of going to the oasis and sukha is that satiation, <sighs> thirst quenched. So these are the three flavors of dharma joy. So hopefully you can just start to feel into those uh, in your own life and practice so you can uh, develop a palette for them. And uh, what's so wonderful about them, and I mentioned this briefly before, is that they, they happen naturally. They don't come into being because they are, uh, they're, not, they're not willed into being um, by the practitioner, but rather the practitioner just puts in place the conditions for the gladness pentad to occur. Um, so we can think about it a little bit like growing a garden. Like we're not in charge of when the seed actually sprouts, right? We can, we can provide good soil and make sure it's in a place where it has plenty of sunlight and we can water it regularly, but we don't control when the seed sprouts. Um, and similarly, um, we can put conditions in place for the gladness pentad, but we can't, we can't uh, force it to happen, right? So, um, and what's great about, um, what I like about this analogy of, the, of a seed growing is when a seed sprouts, you know, little seedlings, they have the leaves that unfold, one and then the other, and that's how the gladness pentad can unfold too. It can be gladness, one leaf, then the next leaf unfurl, unfurls, which is joy, then tranquility, etc. Um, and so our job, just create fav- favorable conditions. Um, so uh, the next question might be, well, what are the favorable conditions? Um, and that's what I'd like to spend the rest of the talk discussing is um, what are favorable conditions for um, the arising of the gladness pentad? And uh, specifically, I want to focus on some lesser known ones. I think um, all of you probably have some wonderful ways of cultivating joy in your own life. Um, people love spending time in nature and with um, people they care about, and uh, they have wonderful hobbies, and uh, that is all fabulous. Uh, and uh, it, sometimes it can be helpful to have some um, lesser-known modes of bringing joy into one's life. So um, the three that I'm going to share with you are all noted in the suttas as causes, as, as conditions for the arising of the gladness pentad. So one is ethical conduct, Sila, virtue, so ethical behavior. Uh, the next is generosity, or dana. And the third is faith, or sada. So ethical conduct, generosity, and faith. So I'll spend a little time sharing about each of those. Um, so to start, uh, virtue, ethical conduct, this um, uh, 
Some of you may may be familiar with the term the bliss of blamelessness. So this refers to uh, the lightness of being when we're not guilty of causing harm, when we're not um, we're not weighed down with the burden of uh, unskillful actions. Uh, We're not killing or stealing or engaging in sexual misconduct or lying, etc. And you might be able to feel into this in your own life uh, and just connecting with the experience of the difference between uh, feeling guilty and non-guilt. Like like there's... uh, Feeling sneaky is no fun. <laughs> so those uh, states of um, yeah of non guilt um, are 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 lighter, um, and it's actually it's very hard for the mind to settle uh, when you've done something unethical. Like I know people whose meditation has been really haunted by the um, unwholesome actions of their past. And so it's actually, it's a really supportive condition, not just for gladness, but for the settling of the mind um, to, um, to have wholesome, uh, engage in wholesome activity, to um, be upright in one's actions. Um, so uh, at Zen Center some time ago, there was a, uh, a very charming new student there who was uh, just starting to take up uh, precept practice, and she was engaging it in her life to try to get a sense of like how um, how the precepts were helpful, and did they bring forth joy, and what's this all about? So she told a story about a time that she went to the grocery store. She went to the clerk, purchased her items, um, and as she was about to leave, she realized that the the clerk gave her too much change. So she practicing her precepts, not taking what's not freely given. Uh, she went back and said, oh, excuse me, you know, you, I think you gave me more change than you intended, handed it back. And as she was about to leave, she noticed the person that was next to her in line that was about to, to check out themselves, um, they just looked astonished. <laughs> and they said, whoa, that that just restored my faith in humanity. <laughs> so this new student, they're like, wow, not so bad, huh? Restored somebody's faith in humanity. Like, How's that for cultivating joy? <laughs> so we never know uh, how our upright actions, how our sila will impact others and the ways that it will brighten the heart. And there, there's such a joy in being able to do what, what's honest. I can think of a few times myself when I was kind of torn between a decision and one just didn't feel quite as ethically upright. And in choosing the one that felt cleaner, it was like a, just a little sparkle of gladness arose in the heart. So that's that fruiting of the gladness pentad. There's a there's a joy, a, a freedom, an inner relaxation uh, when we're not in conflict about the right thing to do. Okay, so that's number one, sila. Uh, the second, generosity or dana. So generosity comes from, I mean, uh, it, it can occur in so many ways. Uh, material gifts, giving time, uh, giving attention, giving an apology, 
uh, giving the gift of fearlessness. That's talked about in the Buddhist tradition, that actually when we live ethically, we're not um, uh, a source of danger for others. Um, so, so many ways that we can uh, be generous. Uh, and for me, for years, I, I kept a gratitude list every night. And uh, in addition to writing down what I was grateful for that day, I would also include um, any gifts that I had given that day. And it might not necessarily be a material gift, but you know, maybe the gift of my listening or any, any gifts that I gave that day. Um, and I noticed how much it gladdened the mind to recall those at the end of the day and actually to, to feel them again. Um, and what I noticed was that if, if I was able to give on any given day, um, that was a good day. And it became much less important whether that day was pleasant or unpleasant. And so, you know, what if we based our happiness on what uh, we give rather than what we get? It's a different way of, of relating in the world. And if you do give a gift, don't miss it. So if you give a gift and you feel that little bit of joy in the heart, really be present for that. Don't miss that moment. You um, Almost like you're a sponge soaking it up. Really let your mindfulness register what that feels like in the body. Uh, there's a, a Native American ceremony where parents give their children an abundance of food and gifts. And then they step away and they cry out, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. And then the children get to give to them from a place of abundance. So that's a training in dana. That's a training in generosity. I was reading uh, the news some time ago, and I came across a story of generosity about a four-year-old boy named Nolan. And Nolan had a rare form of lymphoma, and he was in the hospital. And uh, Nolan, more than anything, wanted to be a firefighter. And so uh, the local fire department got word of this, and they decided to go visit Nolan. Um, as it happens, it was during uh, the height of the COVID pandemic, so they couldn't actually go into his hospital room to visit him. Uh, but they did something better. They actually drove the fire truck to the hospital, and they extended the ladder all the way up to the fifth floor where they greeted Nolan. So you can just imagine what it was like to be that first firefighter up that ladder to meet that little boy. Like you might even feel it in your heart now just imagining that. So you might even go inside and just connect if you feel any gladness in the heart imagining that. And if you do, that's the arising of the gladness pentad. So that's joy 
That's, that's generosity as a condition for gladness. So that's the fruiting of this teaching in your own heart. Okay. So the next, faith. How does faith lead to gladness? So I want to note that faith is not a word that works for everyone. Uh, For some people, the word confidence or trust feels more resonant. Um, And faith in what, of course? Um, In the Dharma. So faith faith in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. In our faith in our own capacity for awakening, in these teachings, in the the, uh, Sangha, in the community of spiritual practitioners. So, um, So that's the sort of faith that we're talking about. Sort of that's the sort of confidence that I'm referencing, um, and it might be hard to uh, to understand how faith can lead to gladness. So one way that we can think about this is uh, to realize that there's um, is that when we yeah when we realize that there's an alternative to suffering, that is very good news. Um, so to realize that I can actually be free regardless of whether circumstances are favorable, like that's very good news. You know, like who wouldn't be happy when they learned that there's an alternative to suffering? So that's that's the thread that takes us um, from faith to gladness. Like, oh, there is another way. What joy. There's so much joy in that. So in order to grow faith it requires you to expose yourself to the teachings. Uh, so by coming to this talk tonight, you are uh, putting the conditions in place for gladness. So you're, you're um, providing the sun, the soil, the water, just in doing this. So listening to the Dharma cultivates faith. Spending time with Dharma friends cultivates faith. Uh, studying cultivates faith. Uh, so here's an analogy about um, about faith from James Barris. So uh, he says that learning to have faith in the Dharma is a little bit like learning to swim. Uh, so you know, at first we get in the pool and we're kind of thrashing around, a doggy paddling, and um, uh, don't feel so supported. Um, we're a little out of control. We don't trust the water to hold us yet, um, but as we spend some more time in the pool, we might learn to tread water a bit. We start to trust that the water's starting to hold us a little bit more. So this is like when we, we start to practice and we start to gain a little trust in the teachings. And we see, okay, this is working a bit. I'm starting to have a little bit of confidence here. And then over time, as we continue to practice, our faith becomes verified. Um, our faith can become radiant. We really trust the Dharma. And that's, that's like when we learn that we can just lay back on the water and float, and that the Dharma can support us, and that it was there to hold us all along. So it's a joyful experience to go from frantically doggy paddling to resting on the surface of the water fully supported.
So that's the joy, that's the, the gladness that can become possible uh, when we have faith, when we have confidence in the teachings. So just like two people in a boat floating on the ocean of suffering, bumping into each other and laughing, right? So when we put the appropriate conditions in place, uh, when we provide uh, conditions like virtue, generosity, faith, uh, we create those conditions for gladness. That's our soil, our sunlight, our water. So, um, so try these out in your life. You probably already are. And you might just see the relationship between those activities and gladness, between those activities and joy. So um, in doing so, may you taste all of the flavors of Dharma joy, experiencing the full buffet. So I'll, I'll close with a poem. And this is by Mary Standing Otter. It's a very joyful poem. Right now, there are Tibetan Buddhist monks in a temple in the Himalayas, endlessly reciting mantras for the cessation of your suffering and for the flourishing of your happiness. Someone you haven't met yet is already dreaming of adoring you. Someone is writing a book that you will read in the next two years that will change how you look at life. Nuns in the Alps are in endless vigil, praying for the Holy Spirit to alight the heart of all of God's children. A farmer is looking at his organic crops and whispering, nourish them. Someone wants to kiss you, to hold you, to make tea for you. Someone is willing to lend you money, wants to know what your favorite food is and treat you to a movie. Someone in your orbit has something immensely valuable to give you, for free. Something is being invented this year that will change how your generation lives, communicates, heals, and passes on. The next great song is being rehearsed. Thousands of people are in yoga classes right now, intentionally sending light out from their heart chakras and wrapping it around the earth. Millions of children are assuming that everything is amazing and will always be that way. Someone is in profound pain, and a few months from now, they'll be thriving like never before. From where they are, they just can't see it. Someone has recently cracked open their joyous, genuine nature because they did the hard work of hauling years of oppression off of their psyche. This luminous juju is floating in the ether and is accessible to you. Someone just this second wished for world peace in earnest. Someone is dedicating their days to protecting your civil liberties and clean drinking water. Someone is regaining their sanity. Someone is coming back from the dead.
Someone is genuinely forgiving the seemingly unforgivable. Someone is curing the incurable. You, me, someone, now. Thank you very much. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you all for your kind attention. All right. So we have a little time now for any questions or comments, any reflections. Maybe anything about your own practice of joy or your own reflection on these topics. That's welcome also. And your comments don't have to be genius. Sometimes I think that's when in a group there's this sense that like if we say something it has to be genius. It's not true. (laughs) And just say your name before you speak if you don't mind. Mike, um, so you distinguish as three things in the, the pentad. How would you distinguish tranquility from concentration? Sure, yeah. So um, uh, they both feed each other, so often they're occurring at the same time. That's a really good question because often uh, concentration brings forth tranquility and tranquility feeds concentration, right? So... Um, uh, I would describe, so uh, tranquility or pasadi is really that state of calm. Um, And it can be both physical, there can be physical tranquility, and there can also be mental tranquility. But they don't necessarily need to happen at the same time. So there's been times where I've had a lot of physical tranquility, but the mind was not all that tranquil. Like you may have had the experience of having a really good day of exercise and the body is so calm in the evening, but the mind, it's not concentrated. So that might be a difference. Um, and there's times where the mind has had, the mind has felt somewhat tranquil, um, but it's not that it's not particularly concentrated or focused. Like it's not, it's not very collected necessarily. Like it has like a, uh, subdued quality, but it's it's, um, it's yeah it's not necessarily collected. Like it might have some kind of like frayed, strayed thoughts. Whereas concentration, it has concentration is co- the collecting of the mind. You know, it's when the mind collects into the present moment and it's willing to rest on 
whatever object we put it on, right? So it's it's very well behaved, um, and so often um, there's a reason that um, concentration meditations they're often called shamatha or samatha, which means calm abiding, because they're so interlinked that those meditations bring forth calm. So concentration quite naturally brings that forth. Yeah, great question. Um, One of the things that you said, May, about floating, floating on your back in the water, it's triggered a memory that I had when I was a kid. I was actually very, very skinny. And my swimming teachers would tell me, all you have to do is float on your back, move your head back, and you'll float. And I didn't. I I could never (laughs) float on my back. (laughs) And it it was hard not to take that personally. Like there was some, you know, like I should be able to float on the water. And it wasn't until I was much older and somewhat more rotund that floating came <laughs> naturally. But at that point, it just... So it made me think sometimes, do you have any thoughts about how does one develop that trust to float when yeah. it just doesn't seem possible? Right, right, Yeah. Well, when you're a kid, maybe you just needed to eat more suffering, like Hote. <laughs> Get a big belly. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, one of the five hindrances is doubt. Um, doubt is like one of the most common things that plagues the mind. And the antidote to doubt is faith. So it's really, really helpful to... to um, find a way to answer the question that you're asking. Like, how do we develop faith when it just doesn't seem possible? Or like when, like, we want to float, but that's not what's happening. Um, So um, for many people, it's finding the dharma that works for them and exposing oneself to it. So if if for whatever reason, if um, Tibetan Buddhism is really the, type of dharma that really does it for you, um, go for that. Or if there's a particular teacher that really inspires you, listen to that teacher's teaching. So whatever helps um, kind of like stoke the fire, like expose yourself to that. And then also spending time with dharma friends. Um, So you might not have any dharma friends, and that's fine. But that's why you can come to places like this and strike up a conversation with someone. So these are different things that can help cultivate faith. And then there's also this idea of um, uh, leaning on the faith of a teacher. So maybe you don't have faith, but you see that there's a teacher or somebody who's a more experienced Dharma practitioner than yourself, and it seems like the Dharma's working for them. So you may not have felt it in your own life yet, which I know isn't the case for you, um, but for some people, you know, they may not have felt it in their own life yet, but they, they can see it's working for this other person. So um, sometimes that's talked about as you can lean on the faith of another. You can lean on the faith of somebody that you're like, okay, 
Um, I haven't felt it for myself, but I, I'm going to trust this because I see it's working for someone else. So those are a few different access points. Thank you, yeah. Sadhu. Thanks. Uh, I guess as far as uh, joy um, that I've been feeling is just coming here and practicing and then seeing it translate little by little in, um, you know, life life outside of here. So I'm definitely uh, feeling, you know, grateful for that and... Um, So, you know, thank thank you to to Insight Meditation Center for that. Mm. <clears throat> Thanks for sharing the. Um, you know, I appreciate what you said about you know you come practice here and then you see it changing your life outside of here. So, I that can be a continuation of our garden analogy where you know we plant a seed. We give it good conditions, but then we don't control when it it sends up a shoot. And so, um, I often think of that in terms of meditation practice. You know, every time we bring the mind back, it's like planting a seed. Um, every time we cultivate loving kindness, it's like planting a seed. And you go out in your life, and lo and behold, you know, maybe you're having an interaction, a difficult interaction with a friend, and one of those seeds sprouts at that moment and you say the kind thing rather than the harmful thing Um, or there's a moment of uh, frustration and one of those seeds sprouts and you're able to be mindful of the frustration rather than um, just acting on it mindlessly so there's a really sweet way that yeah doing this practice it sprouts in our life when we leave here and it's so um, it's very faith building to get to see in one's own life how the Dharma is working. So that can be another source of faith, is reflecting on times that the Dharma has been helpful and reminding ourselves of those times. Thanks for sharing. Um, I think I also wanted to add, if I may, um, I noticed, uh, I get... If we don't feel like, I don't know if this is true, but like if I don't feel very hopeful in the moment, mm-hmm. it seems like that um, just simply by participating with uh, a teacher or with the sangha, we can we can access kind of kind of by leaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that maybe that kind of takes some of the pressure. Off of uh, oh, like why? <laughs> why don't I feel, you know, like is there something wrong with me? Because I'm I'm worrying so much about tomorrow, or you know, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. um, you know, certain pessimistic thoughts. But I feel that with with the, uh, an ongoing practice, we can we can kind of access this this. Uh, hope in, in kind of a, a more simplistic way. Does, does that kind of 
go off of what what you're sharing. Totally. Yep. If, um, yeah, if you come in here and your mind's going a mile a minute and you're feeling hopeless or, uh, you know, there's tons of discursive thought and will this ever work for me or, you know, all of these different things that the mind can say. Just exposing yourself to this environment. Um, uh, you're, yeah, the mind is um, uh, absorbing some really helpful conditions, um, and that can take somebody really far. So, yeah, you don't have to worry too much about what the mind's doing in any given moment. You know, that's just the fruiting of past karma, and just meet that with mindfulness. Mm, thanks for sharing. All right, we should. We should probably wrap it up because it's nine, but you're welcome to come say hi after if you'd like. Um, okay, great. Um, for anybody who's interested, I, um, I have a mailing list of uh, different Dharma activities that I, or Dharma talks and classes that I offer. And so I put that sheet, I put a sign-up sheet on the table in the lobby if you're interested. It's a shared Google group uh, between me and my partner, Koto Conlin. And so we, we send out... Uh, one email a month, so it's very small. Um, and we just, yeah, share what we're up to that month if you'd like to join us. So it's on the lobby, in the lobby if you're interested. All right, thanks so much, everyone. Really good to see you tonight. Take care. <laughs>